Hey everybody, welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy, and it's always a great day when Rachel and Dr. Alexander Vinman show up for a visit. We will get to them shortly, but first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So our recent episode with Juliana Margulies has been in the news. I just want to add that I have known Juliana for many years and believe she's been misunderstood as I have known her to be a passionate, committed supporter of African-American, LGBTQ, and other marginalized communities. I also want to read some recent feedback that we've received. On the Juliana Margulies conversation, Randy Shine writes, Wow, so powerful. Thank you. Jennifer Beanstock writes, It really said all of my feelings out loud. I feel like I am in an alternative universe because people I have respected for many years are now saying Israel doesn't have any right to the land. Why can't people seem to separate Hamas and Palestinians? Why are Palestinians in America chanting death to Jews? Jews aren't chanting death to Palestinians. I fear for my children having to go to college. Just wanted you to know how much I appreciated this episode. It helped me feel less alone in my thoughts. Marcella writes, I loved your podcast episode with Juliana Margulies. Thank you both for speaking the truth. I am not Jewish. And hearing your voices was also a reminder for me that I am doing the right thing by continuing to express my support for the Jewish community and Israel. Yarden Singer writes, quote, thank you for this. I mean, it's devastating the world in this way, but having someone like Juliana speak up with this confidence, unapologetic, is the strength that we need right now. Sally Quill writes, huge fan of your podcast, Andy. Oh my God, this, uh, this should be the anthem to the world. Just brilliant listening. On our Kevin Krim conversation, Randy Shine, a favorite listener of ours, writes, I love how he and his wife have turned this tragedy into something positive. I can't even begin to imagine what they must have gone through. On our Miles Taylor conversation, Deb writes of the threat of Donald Trump becoming president again, quote, I cannot understand how this isn't crystal clear to every thinking human. No one read Hitler's plan either. The only thing we ever seem to learn from history is that we never learn from history. Candace White writes, The very thought sends chills up my spine. Marion Feldman writes, Kudos for making me laugh, cry, mad, and sad. From Sammy's Romanian to Katz's to Halloween Candy and Miles Taylor comparing what's-his-name to Joe Biden. And without saying it out loud, a vote for Nikki Haley. Interesting. And uh, just in general, Sandy and Ed write, Hi, Andy. Quick shout out to say how much we continue to enjoy your podcast. Looking forward to and listening to your show cheers us up every week. All right, let's get to our two big things, the first of which is Israel. We learned last night that the Israeli government knew for over a year that the type of attack that Hamas committed on October 7th, almost down to every single detail, was likely going to happen. And they kind of wrote it off. They wrote it off as like unlikely. Yeah, this was an incredible intelligence failure. You think back on 9-11, and we had some insights into what was going on, but we certainly didn't have a plan sitting there in the CIA or the NSA that said exactly what they were going to do. Well, I would respectfully disagree that there was that August presidential daily briefing that said bin Laden's going to use planes <laughs> to attack America. I mean, we did have that roadmap. Yeah, no, so we have, very, definitely. To your point, it is a very similar 
situation yeah. to 9-11. Oh, I certainly, that was an incredible intelligence failure, but this seems even worse. This seems so much more specific. I mean, with, except for the date, I mean, the activities they were going to do are, are spelled out verbatim. So if this doesn't galvanize the Israeli yeah. people to oust BB, then I don't know what will. You know, perspective is so important. So if we go back to the days after the attack, the horrific attack, which I have to keep reminding people was the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, because I think a lot of people are forgetting that. Everyone was talking about this, this colossal intelligence failure, but we were talking about it in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. It was like, how could this have happened? Well, now we're starting to see what that intelligence failure actually looks like. And when you, when you add that to the fact that Bibi had been incredibly distracted with the West Bank, mm-hmm. with his self-preservation dismantling the courts. Yeah. And so when you think about how unpopular and how tenuous his status was before the attack, this does not help. On the other hand, um, George Bush was elected for a second term after 9-11. Just saying. Sorry. Yeah, wah, but, wah. yeah no, <laughs> it's true. I, I agree with you, but here's where I'll, where I'll differ. Israelis in Israel aren't Americans in the United States. It's a different world there. And the stakes are much higher with this kind of shit. We had one attack. Israel's have, Israelis have been dealing with this for since the beginning of time. And so now that they understand that this could have been prevented, perhaps, I think there's going to be hell to pay. But this also pushes Netanyahu to really uh, rile up his base, which is what Trump does. So the most right-wing crazies in Israel are the ones that he's going to activate and cater to in order to help himself get elected. He's been there for 16 years already, which is already insanely long, and he's been awful the whole time. Yeah, I mean, look, the, 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 there's going to be that, and there's also going to be massive pushback. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes right now. Uh, politically. And now the flip side to all this is, and this is why this subject is so complicated, there was a deadly terrorist attack in Jerusalem, which killed three people. And Hamas took credit for that. This is (laughs) during the truce. And this is why it's very complicated. This is why sympathizing with terrorists, I mean, it's just, we're living in a very chaotic, complicated, nuanced world right now. And I, I just, I wonder what people are thinking when they see Hamas admitting to killing Israelis in Jerusalem while they were out in the streets in America protesting and calling for ceasefire. I just, things just don't make sense to me. And we ain't going to figure it out here. No, we're not. Nope. But one thing we can figure out is big thing number two, Donald Trump. <laughs> Easy peasy compared to Israel and Hamas. The, the big thing of the week, Donald Trump. An appeals court judge reinstated the gag order against Trump and his attorneys in the New York State civil fraud trial, basically saying you cannot talk about court personnel, which you would think would be standard. Um, the Koch brothers. Yeah, that was interesting. Said bye bye. We're going. With, we're going with Tricky Nikki. Yeah, I I'm think telling you, is, keep your eyes on Tricky Nikki. I'm going to completely push back on this. The problem for Nikki Haley is. The things that she wants to do are not the same things that the Republican base believes in. So she talks about immigration in a semi-rational way. She talks about many things in semi-rational ways. And the base, who elect people in a primary, are just not on board with that. So as much as I would be delighted if she 
could take Trump on and win. I, I just think it's it's a fantasy. Trump's base is now 25, 30, 35%. Well, that means there's upwards of 65% who don't like him. And I am not ready to say that the 65% who don't like him ain't going to have their voice heard on Election Day. They just are not going to unify behind one candidate. There's going to be a bunch of Chris Christie people, a little bit of Nikki Haley, a little bit of whoever else is left. Um, One thing's for sure, Ron DeSantis isn't going anywhere. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. I had a hard time finding a winner, so I'm going with losers. My first loser, Elon Musk, for live streaming his anti-Semitic rage to millions. My second loser... More hostages remain, and Hamas and Israeli fighting resumes. My winner is actually Jimmy Carter for proving that good can triumph over evil by outliving Henry Kissinger. My loser, it's hard not to make Elon Musk the loser because him talking to his friend Jonathan Ross. Oh, wait, Jonathan Ross Sorkin? I believe it's Andrew Ross Sorkin, but it was his good friend. Couldn't get his name right. Uh, But I'm going to give a double loser because I think Linda Vaccarino is also in the list of losers. My winner, Lieutenant Michael J. Pence. Mike Pence's Marine son, who likely saved our democracy when he told his dad, quote, you took the same oath I did, an oath to support and defend the Constitution, end quote. My loser, Elon Musk, who appears to be unraveling before our very eyes. Which brings us to our weekly rant. But first... That this had been said online. There was all of the criticism. There was advertisers leaving. We talked to Bob Iger I hope today. they stop. You hope... Uh, don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If, if somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go fuck yourself. But go fuck yourself. <laughs> is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob. Cheer in the audience. Somebody really needs to turn that into some kind of like music mashup. Like, go fuck yourself. Go fuck yourself. Go fuck. Go fuck yourself. Anyway, Elon Musk sat for an interview this week with renowned financial writer, author, and CNBC co-anchor Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Deal Book Summit. Many major advertisers have recently paused or severed ties with X, including Disney, Google, Apple, Lionsgate, Comcast, NBC Universal, IBM, Airbnb, Amazon, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Jack in the Box, The New York Times, and Netflix, to name a few. During that interview, Musk later said that the advertiser boycott is, quote, going to kill the company. That will be what bankrupts the company. And that is what everybody on Earth will know. Nice try, Elon. But it's not advertisers who are going to bankrupt X, nor is it the watchdog group Media Masters, the Anti-Defamation League, Jews, or anyone else. You are the reason. You and you alone. You and your utterly insensitive, tone-deaf, conspiratorial, anti-Semitic, racist, transphobic, xenophobic bullshit you continue to spew with wanton pleasure and reckless abandon. And to be sure... Advertisers don't, quote, blackmail when you tarnish their reputation and negatively impact their sales, which is the opposite of why they advertise. They pull their ads. It's really quite simple. You fuck up, they bail. 
All right, let's get to Rachel and Dr. Alexander Vinman. Rachel Vinman is an opinion columnist at USA Today and a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors. She co-hosts the Suburban Women Problem podcast and is an advisory board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative. She's a prominent activist and plain-spoken political commentator on Twitter, where you can follow her at NatSecHobbyist. Dr. Alexander Vinman is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who was most recently the director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House's National Security Council. He previously served on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and as an attache at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and Kiev. He is currently a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute and leads the national security think tank, the Institute for Informed American Leadership. He's an executive board member for the Renew Democracy Initiative, a senior advisor for Vote Vets, and the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Here, Right Matters. He also frequently appears on NPR, MSNBC, and CNN, and remains engaged with principal decision makers in Washington and Kiev. Rachel, Dr. Alex, welcome back into the back room. Thanks. Great to be back. You had some really good episodes lately, so I feel like a lot of pressure. Uh, no, you guys are, you rank way up high in the list of all-time favorite guests in and on the back room. So no pressure at all. Just be your, your amazing, awesome selves, and uh, you will keep ranking high. How's life in Florida? It's good. Anonymous. It's a, little bit, it's a little bit cold, actually. All right. I def- shouldn't be complaining. Define cold. Well, so I had to, I had had a trip to New York. It was 59. Then I had a trip to San Diego. This was all Monday. Uh, and then um, Wednesday morning, I flew back, and it was 59 here in South Florida. And it was like a little, a bit of a shock. Yeah, but it's already back in the 80s. It's, it's already back. I, I lived for a while uh, back in the day. I lived in LA and I remember people be like, oh my God, it's 61. It's so cold. <laughs> I, have to put a, I have to put a coat, a light coat on. Yeah, we're, we're growing soft very quickly. My favorite thing is about, about LA though. If, if it's like cloudy, they lose their mind. Oh my God. Like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah. I'm like, if yeah, we're ra- so sorry that we we're so sorry, like they take personal responsibility for the weather. Yeah, if it, if it rains a half of an inch, there's storm watch on the nightly news. <laughs> People are crashing on the ten freeway. They're like crashing into each other. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So the big Vinman news recently is your brother Eugene's running for Congress. Your twin that's brother, true. Eugene. Yep. My identical twin brother is running for Congress, and um, I think that maybe 20, 30% think that I'm running for Congress. <laughs> well, I'm glad you said that because I, that's where I wanted to go. Because the, the question that begs to be asked is Are you guys going to just like switch off on the campaign trail? Like if he wakes up with a hangover one morning and he's like, Alex, you got to go out there into Iowa. Okay. And no one, who would know the difference? Ab- absolutely. That's a done deal. You know how they say you can't be in two places at once? <laughs> that's that's not the case in this in this scenario but um you know and frankly um this is going to be this is awesome i'm very uh, proud and happy for him uh he's off to the races already with a really really strong launch and um a groundswell of national support um frankly viral support um and he just needs to convert that to uh the same kind of virality in a house district he's in northern virginia but it's it's going to be uh, important, I think, you know, not just for him personally, but for the region, uh, for the country, keeping that seat in the Democratic hands. And 
he'll do good work in, in Congress. Mm-hmm. And he's running in the 7th District, right, which is currently being held by Abigail Spanberger, who is running for governor. So yeah, that, that could be two nice victories next year for, for our side. Uh, getting back to the twin thing, I have to ask Rachel, like, can, can you swear that over the years they've never, like, substituted each other? Like, yeah. Alex is like, hey, I got a date with Rachel tonight. I, I just am so tired. Can you go? They have even very different voices. Um, I mean, their pictures from when they were younger are, I don't even think their dad can tell the difference. But um, now, by the time I met them, they're pretty different. How about That's sense true. of humor? Is, is You got a good sense of humor. Does Eugene have a good sense of humor? He thinks he does. <laughs> he, he thinks he's got a good sense of humor. It's, you know. I actually just talked to them this week, and I was like, enough with the shit. When it's the two of you, like, it's not as funny as you think it is. If it's a professional <laughs> setting, knock it off and just talk to each other like adults. And then they can't do that. Like, they're sort of incapable of it. But yeah. Um, I, I kind of had a moment this week because yeah. I'm done with the shtick. I'm not sure if you could sense this, but there is a bit of rivalry for my affections, you know, whether, whether it's Eugene or Rachel. I'm uh, sensing it. I'm sensing it big time. Competing, competing <laughs> for, yeah. Yeah, it is it's, true. It is. I mean, but, the, the twin thing is weird, but we live next, we live down the street from them, like, you know, two or three houses away. For six and a half years? Yeah, mm. a long time. Which and, was great for me. Uh, might it have been great bit, yeah, yeah, it was great. I uh, was Rachel. Rachel was was fine with it most of the time. Florida. <laughs> Ra- Rachel's okay. saying some of the quiet stuff out loud. I think. Yeah, that's yeah. We, let's keep that stuff quiet. But um, anyway, I'm very. Hey, I get I, you know me and my family. Like I'm with you, Rachel. Um, so I'm, I'm I, very close with him. So he's got my hundred, hundred and ten percent support. He has my support as well. And of course, he's I'm got both. Of, he's got both of our support. Uh, well, but, in, all, you know, in all seriousness, I would love to have him on. And but until then, um, give me the elevator. I'm going to sign him up. Give me the elevator pitch for your brother. Like, what is the th- main theme of his campaign? What is he hoping to accomplish? So there, there probably are a handful of critical issues. Uh, the fact is that he's. Like me, he served in uniform for, uh, he did some reserve time. He did, served for in uniform for 25 years. And, uh, you know, we, we, will, we didn't sign up to defend the nation, defend the Constitution, defend rights, to have them threatened at home. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the fundamental things he's fighting for. He's fighting for to make sure uh, that uh, ensuring our democracy remains safe. Uh, our rights for women, uh, you know, reproductive rights aren't infringed on, um, that we have a democracy to hand off to our, our children and grandchildren that's imperiled because of Trump and MAGA. Uh, those are kind of the big picture issues. Uh, I think there's he's interested in making sure that weapons of war, assault weapons, uh, don't make it onto the streets. Uh, so I think they're, you know these are kind of typical centrist Democrat uh, principles, some ba- uh, basic legislation around uh, gun safety. He's uh, keen on uh, the local issues. Uh, there is a large immigrant community uh, in the region. We have certainly a enormous amount of, uh, I guess, currency and interest in that issue being refugees from the Soviet Union. So I think there's a, a, uh, an agenda on immigration, immigration reform, He's a foreign policy guy, a national security guy like me, so keenly interested in uh, pushing back on authoritarian regimes around the world, uh, strong support for Ukraine, 
Uh, Israel is an, as an ally. Um, he's concerned about the uh, competition that we have with China uh, drawing into some, something much more dire and uh, confrontational. Um, so, the, and then there are kind of our bread and butter issues in the region. Uh, we, I had the experience of six and a half years uh, driving up and down the uh, I-95 corridor between Northern Virginia and DC. They have, they need to fix some, some of the traffic issues along that corridor. He has a pretty diverse region. Uh, it's majority mi minority. It's uh, leans um, Democrat. Uh, so, you know, from for, from his standpoint, that's a, a good, healthy mm -hmm. composition. He has an agricultural sector because it extends pretty far west towards the Shenandoah Valley where there are farmers. So he has that constituency. I hope he talks about his garden and his gardening. He's pretty <laughs> passionate about his gardening. I mean, in the, in the spring and summer, he spends hours on that thing. So, you know, not quite the same thing as running a farm, but he's uh, he, he likes to grow his tomatoes and, and uh, fresh vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I think he, he's, there are a large number of issues. He has some interesting contenders also. You know, there's some excellent Democrats that that have served in the Virginia House that he's mm -hmm. going to be competing against. Mm -hmm. um, uh, House uh, Virginia House members uh, that have uh, legislated at the local level uh, for, you know, one, two, uh, up to three terms that are running. Uh, he's He's been very, very engaged in uh, dem democratic issues for, you know, you could say for his entire career, uh, but um, he doesn't have that kind of local footprint just because he's in the military and you have to be apolitical in, in, in when you're serving in uniform. And he's only been out of the military uh, since September first uh, of 2022 so he's kind of new but he wants to continue to serve um in congress so uh that's that's great on him i'm a huge uh, proponent of veterans continuing to serve out of uniform like they did in uniform uh but he has he's gonna have a, a you know a challenging primary to which is exciting yeah. actually i think it's good to have uh, competition um you know for until other people choose who they want to be their nominee but you know there's a lot of criticism uh at all levels in in both parties of you know like okay well i guess this is just our choice i mean a mm -hmm. lot of the republican primary is just for show and um and i really like that in in the races where you can have a good faith primary it's not gonna be a lot of mudslinging um and it's nice to see pe where people stand on the issues and, you know, what the voters think, who who is most electable and who they want to represent them. And I think it's a good to get back to that um, in a lot of ways to mm. see how that, because that's the functional part of our democracy and the mm -hmm. primary process. And, and it's the way it should be working. I'm going to make a prediction here. I'm going to predict that in, in spite of the superb candidates that he's, uh, running against and uh that have you know a local uh, base uh the district is obviously larger that the u.s house district is much larger than the virginia house district uh but in spite of that eugene's gonna win because he's uh, a superb candidate uh and he's a proven leader and um he's gonna, he's gonna do what he says you're saying that with a smile well, that's because he's my twin brother, and I'm excited and I'm happy for uh, him. And of course. I'm going to do everything I can to help him. Well, I was going to say, if you guys are out there campaigning with him and for him, I think that's a, a big benefit to him and a, and a big advantage over his uh, opponents. Was he that... also looks like 
So the other thing that he has a benefit to him is he looks like me. So he's, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, but his jokes don't land like yours do. Yeah. Jokes don't yeah. Land. Okay. So what about you guys? You both are prominent, popular people. Can we break some news here? Any future campaigns for you guys? No. Um, well, Ra Fa Rachel, famous last words, huh? Ra Rachel speaks for me. Um, we're recent transplants to uh, to South Florida, anyway. So I don't think um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is retiring anytime no. soon. Yeah. So, um, How about Governor yeah. Rachel Vindman? That has a nice yeah. ring to it. I mean, wow. I do wear heels. That's actually a little scary. So I would, I could really like, you know. You have that for uh, yeah, yeah. I have that in common so you with Ron DeSantis. governors wear heels. That's true. There um, you go. That could, that's there's the bumper sticker right there. Yeah, yeah. I wear I wear uh, I wear my heels better, or something like that. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I, uh, I don't even. Speaking of predictions, I don't even know. After that, I didn't watch the debate last night. I wouldn't watch anything on Fox News. Also, we weren't home. But the clips I saw, um, I don't even see how Ron DeSantis is presidential campaign lasts beyond Iowa. I'm sure it probably will, but not much. It might not last beyond tonight. <laughs> I mean, it was all, I didn't watch it, but I like Newsom and I saw some clips and uh, there's a lot of Democrats today who are quote unquote, licking the proverbial lips, if you will, and very excited, not this cycle, but yeah, he he's he's got something there that I think could really resonate with a lot of people in the next election. He's uh, very charming, and he has that kind of you know maybe a little bit of that Kennedy Kennedy esque vibe about him. Uh, but he also um, I don't know. Well, the problem is does he play as well in the heartland as he does on the coasts, and that that might be the biggest challenge for him. There's a lot of people who I think I would love to hear a debate among again getting back to the quality of candidates. Mm -hmm. um, Gretchen Whitmer, Josh Shapiro, mm -hmm. uh, the governor of Maryland, Westmore. But I mean, all these, like, I would love to hear their ideas and their vision for what they would do at the federal level because, um, you know, they're younger. We, we were at an event last night and I was saying it was, it was for our daughter's school. She's almost 13 um, and she's in seventh grade. And we were just talking about mm -hmm. that's, uh, the, the governor of Maryland and mm -hmm. he is so impressive. But, uh, you know, it's also former military. Mr. Fun Facts. Um, but the wait, 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 wait. Is that your new nickname? Mr. Fun Facts? Because I love that. I'm going to go with that if I, if I have your permission. Yes, yes, please. Um, but, you know, I mean, as I approach 50 in a few months, um, you know, you realize like, we're leaving a world, you know, we're not the generation that's going to be around. And, and what, yeah, we're not that old, honey. No. We don't have to talk about it like we're having off right now. Okay. You know, we might have a couple more decades. I mean, you guys are like right. almost getting that AARP letter. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, you, uh, if they, you didn't get no, it already. They already sent it to me. But I'm not there. Rachel's much older than I am. <laughs> like 16 months. But the, the issue is, I think they, they had different experiences than us mm -hmm. when it comes to paying for higher education mm -hmm. or healthcare issues even you know and, and so they are going to have to come up with solutions that work for them and that might be sound kind of foreign to my ears it might not be something that I embrace at first but it is the way they see it and, and every generation you know has the opportunity for that so 
I'm I'm excited for, I mean, not to look just totally beyond 2024. In fact, 2024 is, you know, we, we're still in like saving democracy mode, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, when we finally get, I think, hopefully over that hump and move forward, it's going to be great to, for people to be free to have, to sort of express their ideas more and more the vision once we get out of what I think is kind of an acute time um, for our country and for democracy and that we can really start to make a dent in some of these issues, whether it's climate or, you know, opportunity, opportunity and the, the division when it comes to, uh, I think, the the income discrepancy that we see, it's really led to a lot of these things. Well, I, I believe the children are our future. Oh we need gosh. to teach them well and let them lead the way. Hmm. But where, I, have I, where have I heard that before? <laughs> so, so, but you know, at the same time- That was a brilliant impersonation of Whitney Houston, by the way. I mean, you, you close yeah. your eyes, it. you, it's, yeah. like this, it's like listening to Whitney. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but I, do, I would say that, you know, there have been some bit, some recent events that, that have uh, kind of alarmed me a little bit. Um, the very young portion that's highly progressive has shown a really bad color with regards to uh, this, uh, what's been going on uh, with with this Israel-Hamas war, mm-hmm. and completely, completely misunderstanding, misreading the situation in a in a disastrous kind of way, where they're rallying in support of terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, and that shows that shows a lack of seasoning. I, I think the fact that, that there's a susceptibility uh, based on how uh, that generation consumes news. That there's there's a, yeah there's a there's a, a a danger with kind of being um, targeted and frankly uh, radicalized by disinformation that we need to figure out how to address. Some of that will come with age and you know wisdom and uh, some discerning uh, of sources, uh, not you know seven second TikTok video or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. But it is pretty disturbing. So. Um, you know, I, I do think that um, we have many, many capable young people. And I think we're seeing, frankly, because social media and the echo chambers, we're seeing maybe some of the more radical elements. But I think we have some time and we need we, we have a responsibility uh, the, the older generation has a responsibility to help kind of develop the uh, young folks to take to lead in the future. Mm-hmm. What about Andy? Can I ask us about this because he tweets about it a lot. Mm-hmm. I do. And I also read your Substack, and so I want to read something that you recently wrote about the Israel conflict, which speaks to what you just brought up. And then I do actually want to talk about the election and young people, but you write, quote, since October 7th, 2023, I have seen influence operations permeate Hamas's information strategy in their war against Israel. The current far-right Israeli government's West Bank settlement policy and the terrible state in Israel-Palestine relations add credibility to an idea to idea that Israel is an oppressor. The situation is complex, but what is clear is Russia, Hamas, and other illiberal actors are conducting influence operations and promoting false narratives seeking to inflame anti-Israel sentiments by advancing the narrative that Israel is indiscriminate in attacking Hamas, that Israel is the aggressor in the Israel-Hamas war, and that Israel is worse in the conduct of its war than Russia is in the war on Ukraine. And I couldn't agree more with every single word of that. And to your point earlier about what's happening with young people today, how do you explain it? How do you explain this 
vitriolic reaction without any context whatsoever. Forget the fact of context going back centuries. I'm talking about context just going back to October 7th. Like that seems lost. How do you explain this hatred? So I'm going to start with the fact that, you know, I, 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 I'm center left. I, I, you know, certain areas I'm, I'm progressive, Uh, but, um, I think that there is a danger and I hate the, the term wokeness, but with the far left elements of, um, of our, our political system that have generated a kind of a, um, um, anti-Americanism and a self-loathing that has, again, has infected, uh, portions of our, our young population, uh, whether that's college campuses or more broadly, there are, you know, the, um, democratic socialists as a political movement is not tiny in that demographic. And I think that's part of it. You know, there's a hypercriticism of the United States and it, it's shortfalls. Uh, I, that's, that's part of the, 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 the formula here. I think there is an inherent bias, you know, some, I, you could go so far as to say anti-Semitism. I'm not sure if it's quite as strong. I think there are plenty of anti-Semites out there, but there's an inherent bias of a minority population that frankly still is misunderstood because it's so tiny within the American, American, American body politic within the American demographic, tiny, most, most, uh, you know, I'd say most Americans probably don't have a huge amount of interaction with Jewish people kept for uh, urban centers, uh, metropolitan centers and things of that nature. And therefore they're different. They're, you know, uh, um, there are mis because of the lack of understanding or lack of interaction, they're, they're biased. Then of course there's the more uh, uh, kind of insipid anti-Semitism. And then on top of that, when you have these narratives of occupation, um, um, uh, this narrative of um, Hamas working to decolonize mm-hmm. and corruption of, of history, a complete misunderstanding of, you know, the, the origins of um, the interaction between the Jewish population and the um, Arab population in, in Palestine, how recent that was. This is not, you know, uh, hundreds of years struggle. This was because they were all out, uh, existed under the the yoke of uh, the Ottoman Empire, both the Palestinian population, the Jewish population, the Jewish population due to Zionism started to settle in the region in the, I mean, there was always a Jewish population. But larger numbers start to flow in in the uh, late portions of the 19th century. Uh, those numbers build through, um, because of Nazism, uh, through the, the 20s and 30s and, and 40s. Uh, and the Jewish population settles in desert, uh, unwanted land. And the way they do it is they buy buy land. They buy uh, you know unwanted land and develop it into kind of thriving centers. Um, you didn't you, you had Jaffa. You did not have Tel Aviv back in the 20s and 30s, the, the uh, Jewish people built that from scratch. And then, so they were coexisting, uh, those, that land was sold uh, freely and fairly. And then there was an effort to provide the Jewish people a, a homeland um, after the atrocities of the Holocaust. At, at the same time, securing for the Palestinian population, their own homeland mm-hmm. that they didn't really have. Neither the Palestinians nor the Jews had a homeland. It was in limbo. It was a sphere of influence that was subject to uh, uh, the UK power and authority. And an effort to grant both of them collapsed on multiple occasions. It collapsed in 1948, 
when uh, the Palestinian population and the adjacent Arab states attacked Israel uh, multiple times. It was 67, it was 73. Uh, and eventually, you know, after many, many efforts, we wind up with today. But Israel is not it just, it's it's the stronger uh, uh, state, but it's not, and that's partly because uh, I think the Palestinian population was abandoned by by the uh, Arab states, uh, uh, you know, all throughout that period, really. Um, but it's not occupying. That is a complete misunderstanding of what's going on. It's just a failure to reach the kind of the end state, which is a, pe a peaceful coexistence between the two peoples. Now, it is absolutely horrendous that, you know, this occurs in a period where Netanyahu, a radical far-right extreme political figure, uh, notoriously corrupt, seeking to uh, evade a prosecution in jail, has also let security lapse, has abused the Palestinian population, especially in the West Bank, allowed uh, Hamas to take root and control Gaza for uh, over 15 years. And that is also a part of the mix here because you have Netanyahu in play. If you had a normal government there, I don't think we would have had either uh, October 7th or the kind of backlash against Israel. There probably would have still been something, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have been of the scale that we're seeing now just because there has been heaps of criticism on, on Netanyahu and the way he's, he's been running a country. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, it's, it's again, like I, you know, I said in my piece, it's a very complex issue. It's mm -hmm. just everything about the region is, you know, makes your head hurt. Uh, but I think that's part of the reason that, um, and people don't take the time to be uh, educated about these issues. That's why, frankly, one of the reasons I started my Substack to to try, try to dive into these issues and make them kind of palatable and understandable, you know, not in a in a full book, but in something that kind of distills facts to so, uh, something useful and and that people could draw some conclusions on. So I, I think my, what what I'd like to encourage and what, what I encouraged in that piece, in the active measures piece is for people to spend at least a little bit of time, dig deeper than than TikToks, uh, do a little bit of reading and understand the, the issues before they join their friends and, you know, and, and succumb to that peer pressure mm -hmm. and go out in the streets and, and basically side with terrorism, mm -hmm. which is what, what's been going on in huge numbers. I don't understand why people feel a need to tear down posters mm -hmm. of kidnapped people. I mean, you know, if it makes somebody feel good to let people know about kidnapped people, why would you do that? It is just like a, a horrible thing to do as a human being. For what reason? It's not propaganda. These people were, were kidnapped uh, and there's an effort to continue to raise the issue. You could, if you want to, you could put up posters of, of, of uh, you know, the collateral damage and the, the deaths uh, being inflicted by by uh, Israel's counteroffensive. That's mm -hmm. completely appropriate. But mm -hmm. would you... You know, tear down these posters. I, I, it doesn't. Some of this just doesn't make sense to me, and uh, I wonder if how embarrassed people's parents must be when they see their children, you know, doing that. Sure. One other thing, and I think this is going to probably be a bit controversial. Um, you know, I grew up in New York City. My best friend growing up was a, a Palestinian, uh, um, Sirhan, and I felt always very welcome in, in his household. Jewish refugee kid from Soviet Union. My best friend was a Palestinian. I, I have fond memories. Uh, still, I, I've lost contact with him, but I still, you know, feel close to him in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I've never felt it from him, but I've I have felt it in a lot of other settings. There is a inherent, trained 
racism against the Jewish people in the Muslim communities. Mm -hmm. It is encouraged. It is nurtured. It is something that is not discussed. There are plenty of, you know, kind of more uh, open-minded liberal uh, Muslims that, mm -hmm. so it doesn't apply to everybody by any means, but in large communities, it is nurtured, this, this hatred and anti-Semitism. And it is not something that I see addressed in any significant way. And that is fundamental. Can if I Israel has to, if Israel, yes, uh, of course, uh, if Israel, you, you could say anything you want me, <laughs> but if Israel is going to uh, coexist uh, in the region, this nurturing of hatred dehumanizing of, of the Jewish people, that has to end. I just, so I actually lived and worked um, in Israel for three years. And initially I worked in Gaza and lived there. Wow. I worked for an NGO and um, I worked with women uh, in camps and teaching English and other kind of health classes of sorts. But um, what, what year years were, were these? Between the two intifadas, so after the first intifada, mm -hmm. and then uh, when, during, I had already moved to Jerusalem, when uh, Sharon went to the Temple Mount, mm -hmm. which really kind of precipitated. 1995. The beginning of 1999 to the end of 2001. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and uh, I was young and idealistic then. But two things. One, I remember going to visit a student of mine, and she just had a baby, a boy. And I, I spoke Arabic then. I guess I still speak Arabic, but just not very well. And um, she said something to me, and I was like, I'm sorry, did I understand that correctly? And I did. Uh, she told me that she would raise her son to be a martyr. Mm -hmm. And um, now I want to tell you something. She was illiterate in any language. She couldn't read in any language, and we were working on that. And um, and But... Just, just for self-esteem purposes. Um, but I, I just, so I say that to say, um, she didn't have a lot of world exposure. Okay. So I, I, I don't, as a mother myself, I don't know how you could say that you would raise your child to die or kill others. But, mm -hmm. um, also I know we're, we're, what I'm trying to say here is a lot of these people who are protesting and saying these things have no understanding of the um i don't want to use the word mentality but the cultural mm -hmm. kind of the cultural sure. mentality the cultural approach mm -hmm. so we are we're really good at this in the united states and the west i think of projecting which we all do it it's, it's not every culture does it of projecting your values on someone else because you think it's the same and you think the value of life is the same as you have and the truth is it's just not like that and so you're jewish you understand like life and judaism is everything it's the high we wear. It's everything. It's it's the representation of whether you're religious or secular, life is valued. And and there is a little bit of a difference there. What I'm not I'm not trying to uh, criticize a whole culture, but it exists. And so we have to be very careful of assuming that when you're advocating or promoting something that that it that it's the same. I mean, the the people well, so history, Hamas, history, and context yeah. and perspective are incredibly important, but they're also yeah. incredibly yeah. absent yeah. in this conversation. You know, it is. Um, it is. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, yeah. I I agree with everything you're saying, but I would think there are people on the other side that would say, "Well, you know what, Jews, uh, Israelis in particular, are also raised with 
maybe not to the same degrees, but there is an animosity that is there on the other side as well. I think a lot of that's changing on some level amongst the people. You see all the protests of the last year or so. But then the flip side to that is, but then they also elected all these right-wing freaks, these extremists. But with regard to the hostage posters, what bothers me is that it's so hypocritical of what these people are doing. You know, the same people that say, look, there are innocent Palestinians in Gaza. They're getting killed. Their houses are being destroyed. They didn't ask for this. They didn't ask for war. They're not part of Hamas. They're not part of the government. Well, guess what? Neither are the people on those posters, right? Yeah. Why doesn't so, that same compassion and yeah. empathy translate into Israeli innocent people who are not part of the government, who didn't ask for this, and are, whose relatives are, are, are praying that they still are alive somewhere in Gaza? That is completely, completely, uh, I think that's a good way to look at it. But I wanted to, to take a, uh, to dive a little bit deeper because you raised some excellent points uh, about the, uh, the way that the Jewish uh, population or Israeli population is interacting. I think the fact is that I, you know, I don't know how we get there now, but I, I, I was, I think I still am a believer in the, in the um, two-state solution. It's just, mm -hmm. again, the reality of how do you get there? in this in this kind of crisis moment uh i i think wiser people than me uh have Your some pressure? ideas you know okay. um wait so, wait wait that's a good point wasn't this all solved a few years ago by jared kushner he read, a, he read like nine bucks so. i mean isn't yeah. there peace in the middle east because of jack yeah. maybe not quite so but um i think the fact is you know the, the settlement policy is absolutely horrible mm -hmm. uh under both uh, Netanyahu's government and these uh, ultra radical um, uh, Jewish groups mm -hmm. that actually also don't believe in the state of Israel. Uh, I think there's a misconception about uh, what the composition of Israel is. There are a huge number of Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews. Actually, um, uh, Ashkenazi, the European Jews, are the mi minority. It's a very, very di diverse culture. There are Druze. There are uh, Muslims, Israeli Muslims, uh, that are, are a major component of the population. So it is it is quite diverse. And I think that, you know, um, I think there are probably far more people get along, but there are plenty of uh, the same kinds of things that you see in the U.S. or mm -hmm. in Europe, of nationalists, plenty of uh, Jews that are, uh, you know, probably some of them are Eastern European Russian Jews. I, they're Russians actually are pretty darn racist and that those Jewish uh, uh, immigrants from from Russia probably came over with a lot of those kind of racist tendencies also mm -hmm. and have aided uh, um, or added to this this kind of yeah. sharp divide but I mean there there are so many different layers to this to, to peel back and um, you know we didn't even I, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't, didn't cover it in my first kind of uh, commentary but you know the human toll is 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 tragic and disastrous. Uh, Israel feels an absolute essential need to root out Hamas. Mm -hmm. That is completely valid, and I support that. Uh, I just you know I've got a security background, defense background. I served in the military. I understand those imperatives. What you, Israel, Israel needs to deliver for the population. All that makes good sense. Um, but they, that has to happen recognizing that um the focal point is uh hamas military wing the political wing and there are countless civilians in there and children 
that even if they're radicalized, they're children, mm -hmm. and Israel has an absolute responsibility to this humanist, Western liberal um, urgency to safeguard uh, innocent souls, and we need to hold it, uh, hold Israel. Uh, we need to hold the military accountable and hold mm -hmm. their feet to the fire to do that. Um, I think they are doing that in in a lot of ways, uh, just because it'd be I'd be it would be shocking if somehow even in spite of October seventh. They abrogated all of those dear values, um, but that, I, I would be shocked to, to learn of something like that. I haven't seen any of the instances of that. I think they're doing the, the best they can. And still, based on the scale of this war, uh, there are way too many civilian deaths. Um, How do you, I got to ask you this question, because I've been asking this of everyone I've talked to since October 7th, especially to people who are in the ceasefire crowd, or war is not the answer crowd, or people who are horrified, and rightly so, at the collateral damage. If we establish the fact that Israel must eradicate Hamas, but then you look at how this war is being prosecuted and how Hamas is using people as human shields, basing its operations in and around schools, hospitals, communities, private homes, how does Israel achieve that Goal. Well, this is this is the thing that I, you know, in the first in the hours after we learned about October seventh, um, I said that it's going to be a tragic loss of life because mm -hmm. of the because it was absolutely apparent to me that civilian casualties are the centerpiece of Hamas's strategy. Mm -hmm. It is they're not trying to. It's not a, a accident or a byproduct. It, they are a centerpiece of what Hamas is trying to achieve. They are intentionally sacrificing maximum Palestinian lives because that that they think that will create an outrage that would potentially uh, stop Israel's effort from destroying. This was a major miscalculation by Hamas. They they provoked Israel to take this action, but they thought that they would have the support of um, of Iran in in greater ways. Of Iranian proxies in Yemen and um, Hezbollah in Lebanon, they thought that you know there would be even more outrage from um, or uh, more kind of uh, uh, tempered support from, let's say, Germany that had been ambiguous in the past for uh, uh, um, Israel. And on that basis, they thought you know they would be able to survive. They would take some casualties and survive. That is not going on. I'm very. Uh, I mean, it's pretty amazing to see the the states rally around israel and while cautioning and urging israel to be careful mm -hmm. with human lives continue to provide ironclad support to, to israel to root out hamas mm -hmm. and hamas made a major miscalculation i think the fact is they're going to get the exactly what they want which is a lot of civilian casualties but it's not going to save them mm -hmm. it's actually you know hamas will be wiped off mm -hmm. the face of the earth i think that's the end state here uh and but the problem is that we're going to go through more civilian casualties because of the way this war was designed by Hamas. And Israel is doing, I think, what it can to try to minimize those casualties. But this is dense urban settings mm -hmm. in areas where Hamas is restricting the movement of the civilian population to prevent them from fleeing, using human shields. Uh, and Israel, you know, Israel, what's, what, what people don't realize is that Israel is completely abiding by the law of armed conflict conflict completely within the rights to defend itself to destroy hamas the law of armed conflict does not distinguish once 
Hamas uh, um, is embedded into the civilian civilian population and uses human shields. Uh, Israel has is well within its right to destroy Hamas in spite of the human ca uh, casualties. Mm -hmm. That's what the law of armed conflict said. That was what basically the the states that abide by that um, by that signed up to this uh, international agreement recognize that you have to that war is the ugliest of of human endeavors and that there will be human casualties but i think the fact is that we want to hold israel to a higher st a standard um international humanitarian law uh, and uh even beyond that you know continue to urge israel to in spite of of uh the fact that it's well with its uh, rights within the law of armed conflict be even more careful to avoid civilian casualties mm -hmm. i think there's a some practical reasons for that one of the practical reasons is simple that these populations are gonna have to live together mm -hmm. in the future or will come to an end and the more human casualties there are i think hamas is being blamed by the gazans by from the polling i've seen um but you know eventually israel it would be israeli bombs or israeli bullets uh that that uh inflicted some of the civilian casualties and the less of that that we could see the better chance for kind of maybe an endurance piece mm -hmm. um so i mean my military experience is limited to watching the hostage rescue in season three of fauda okay so i sit back and go how are they going to do this rachel i want to ask you as someone who's lived and worked in gaza is it does it seem feasible to you that they can do this well first of all i would say that the population of gaza basically doubled in the past 25 years since I was there. So a uh, lot more people. Mm -hmm. And uh, most people live in the northern part of Gaza. The southern part of Gaza is where Hamas was started, a place called Han Yunus, which is a refugee camp in the town and much more religious, actually, um, than the northern part of Gaza. But when Hamas took over and really through the process of the Second Intifada, all of Gaza got a lot more religious and that was not totally welcome. It was, it was also kind of not really religious, but religious for show, because that was what was expected from the people who were in charge. But it is a very small strip of land, and it's going to be very difficult. I think you also need to look at that Egypt doesn't want Gazans. Mm -hmm. um, women and children, maybe, but also like someone's going to have to care for these women and children. Someone's going to have to provide funds. The Gulf states, uh, they're very good at lip service of mm -hmm. talking about taking care of the Palestinians, but they don't actually take care of the Palestinians. Absolutely. My point is, like, when, when you talk about other countries absorbing refugee population from Gaza, it's a big calculus because mm -hmm. what what qualifies as a military age male is probably a lot younger for them in terms of what they're concerned and how they view it. And, and that is the real issue. So in order for any of this to happen and minimize civilian casualties, the civilians need to get out of there. Yeah. But one thing Alex said, um, it was a comment on on Substack that I thought was really good. Someone basically said, do you not believe like medicine sends frontiers or something, you know, or, or do you not believe like their numbers? And I think Alex's comment was something to the extent of like, I haven't seen anything that shows that Israel is committing atrocities, but War is inherently messy mm -hmm. and ugly and horrible. Again, something that most Westerners have no experience with at all. Also, the other thing you have to understand, and this is the part that I just 
I can't emphasize it enough. Everyone who is in Gaza now, who is, whether you're Palestinian or you work for an NGO or whatever you do, you are there under the auspices of Hamas. You, if you want to be there and you want to do NGO work, you've got to pay to play. Mm-hmm. And and some of that is going to be. Or you're, see, you're showing what you, you're, you know, what they want you to see. I mean, but you have to assume that everything is a hostage video, that there's a gun to someone's back when they're saying whatever they're saying. Some of it might be real, but it's really hard. How do you know which is exaggerated, which is real, which they were told okay, yeah. in exchange for something else? And that, I think, is a re- something that's really yeah. missed. We're like, oh, well. That's the point, Alex, that you made earlier in that the people in this country, perhaps in particular young people on college campuses, they, they're they like talking about Hamas as if it's a normalized government entity that could be trusted yeah. with casualty numbers, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, these folks are out in the streets demanding a ceasefire. What is Hamas doing? They're killing people in Jerusalem and taking yeah. credit for it during yeah. the truce. So yeah. Nonsense. It's, it, it's absolute insanity, the yeah. vacuum that people are living in when they, when they make such big, bold declarations of what Israel should be sure. doing without appreciating... What the hell is going on there? What's interesting about this is that somehow you could separate Hamas when most people acknowledge that Russia is a bad actor, Iran's a bad actor, but Hamas, who is a ally and a proxy, is not. How do you? How does that logical leap right. work exactly? That takes me to the to to the other. You know what's in the background here is a you know twenty one twenty two month war between Russia and Ukraine that people have in large part stopped talking about, but a war that will probably in even maybe bigger ways shape the security environment of the United States. Mm -hmm. And that it's absolutely essential that in the coming weeks, the U.S. pass uh, security assistance for Israel, for Ukraine, for Taiwan, if we want a safer world for our, our, our children and grandchildren. And this war in in Ukraine is actually not going particularly well. And the risks in 2024 are high. There's a chance that uh, Ukraine uh, could lose more territory. Russia, can you get uh, regain the initiative? A lot of that is be- because the amount of aid that we, we're providing is unlikely to be sustained. And I see a lot of risks there too. Not only are we not talking about it, not only is it sort of fallen off the media cycle, but you have one of our political parties that's become like... Putin and Russia sympathizers and talking about Ukraine as if it's an enemy. One word, Trump. Exactly. It's really that simple. He's captured the Republican Party, the vast majority of it. He has a um, animus towards Ukraine and an affinity towards Putin in particular. And that is the temperament of the Republican Party because that's what the leader of the Republican Party wants. I want to ask you about the breaking news that we learned about last night. You're a national security guy. Israel had intel for over a year, almost down to every single detail about this attack on October 7th, except the date. And they wrote it off as unlikely, impractical. How did Israel not act on this? Hubris. I think that's a large portion of this, that uh, they felt, well, there's, I think it's the hubris and the fact that, you know, uh, Israel is uh, um, such a much more powerful state than than Hamas, has all the technological advantages, the training. 
I think the other part of it is because of the uh, radicalized nature of the uh, body politic in uh, Israel and the need to, uh, you know, this uh, another element of hubris would be the fact that, well, we've come to an accommodation with Hamas. They've been there since 2007. Uh, they haven't caused, caused us too much trouble, occasional flare-ups. Um, you know, something of that scale is it, it would it just goes is it such a divergent um, path that it's hard for them to understand. And I think part of it was also the fact that you know the, uh, the Netanyahu government was focused on a settler policy in the West Bank, and uh, we would be pr uh, impractical for them to reduce the force structure in the West Bank and apply that to the Gaza Strip um, and secure the Gaza Strip. Because that would be, if you believed it, that would be the requirement, mm -hmm. and that would go against the the politics uh, of uh, Netanyahu. So I think these are what, some of the reasons why uh, he's going to be held to account for this ultimately after we get past the this kind of you know once the war starts to simmer down, Netanyahu's days are numbered, and he's going to be held accountable for this. Mm -hmm. So my last question: the twenty four election. You think about young people with climate change, with gun reform, with choice with save democracy that this isn't an election that young people should go out and vote in, in droves i don't know what is but you do have this situation in israel which is causing a lot of concern on college campuses and amongst the young constituents do you do you feel like we have a real problem here or is this something that at the end of the day when kids go in to vote if they vote they will ultimately make the right choice so because you you captured the last part of it if they vote the numbers for uh, the youth vote are really kind of not significant, not not sufficiently significant uh, to really make that much of a difference. Um, so on that basis, I'm not overly concerned. I think the fact is that um, there are probably are there there might be a protest vote. It's it's a pure victory for that protest vote because uh, you, they would be uh, voting their own interests by either abstaining or voting for Trump who is a authoritarian, uh, but there's probably going to be some sliver of that. I think the biggest problem is really systemic in that one of the two major parties is going to nominate Donald Trump. It's a, a, a bigger issue than, you know, what we're seeing now with some sort of backlash against Biden. That's that's what I'm concerned about. I think both Rachel and I in our, in our sub stacks have been kind of writing. I, I do a lot of national security and, and defense stuff, but I've also been kind of running a, a bit of a commentary on 2024, and so is Rachel. Um, I think that, you know, that's the bigger, bigger concern that we have a coin flip between authoritarianism and democracy yeah. rather than kind of a maybe a short term uh, blip in terms of a rejection of the, the, you know, the incumbent administration's politics over a particular policy issue. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, Americans tend to have uh, um, pretty short memories and they'll vote on what's closest to them. I think when it's time to pull the lever, um, you're you know, dating people, yourself. Yeah, you were so, calling me old, but no. you're talking about pulling a lever. <laughs> it's, a, it's a metaphor. <laughs> um, so when it's when it's time to pull the lever, people kind of start to reconcile. Okay, this is a vote. I might not be happy, but this would be a vote for mm -hmm. authoritarianism. And I think people have been voting for democracy, certainly in 2020, 2022, uh, even the 2023 mm -hmm. kind of you see that trend, and I don't think that's likely to be upset mm -hmm. um, over, over this particular issue. I mean, it, it's four years, and we have a really clear choice. Mm -hmm. 
So I think as long as we keep on that message and explaining it, and it might not be everything you want and everything you like. And I was just reading something yesterday about AOC talking about Nancy Pelosi. It wasn't very flattering. A lot of times she, she spoke out publicly about the support she did or didn't receive from Nancy Pelosi and the DCCC, et cetera, et cetera. But you know what? She still shows up and she does her job, mm -hmm. even if it's not the situation that she wants, because she has a, a constituency to represent and, and she does it. So we, we need to be a little bit more clear eyed and less like, you know, pie in the sky that everything needs to be perfect. Or where the, wherever the winds blow, yeah. for that matter. Well, I and mean, you know, we're, we're working towards a more perfect union. It's never going to be perfect. Just as we as individuals are never going to be perfect. And we mm -hmm. make up this country. So... Uh, wait, this marriage is perfect. <laughs> um, Alex, so... you're, you're perfect, aren't you? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, Rachel, I mean... Rachel's perfect. Ah, there you go. So, Good answer. You know, I, I think we, we have to say, what is the best situation? Not like the lesser of two evils. That's not what this is. This is, this is what we make it. Exactly. Um, the late Pat Summit said that it, her saying was, "It is what it is. It will be what you make it." And I, I love that saying so much because there's so much you can't control, but there is a lot that we can control, and that is what are we working towards? And we see it. We saw it in November. We saw it last year in the midterms. People vote. They're voting against extremism. They understand extremism in their communities. It's not good. And I I think, but it all takes work. It takes a ground game. And you've got to get out there and do it. And don't tell me you vote because, great, I'm glad that you vote. But voting is not enough. We need more. And we need everyone to engage. But it is very winnable if we all work hard and get involved. And I think it's good to not get tripped up on one certain demographic or one certain group but mm -hmm. just to say i'm going to do my best and all i can no matter what because for me for us the stakes are very very high we're sitting with issue voters <laughs> democracy. democracy yeah like me very simple jail. isn't it but, we should all be yeah. single issue voters yeah yeah but i you know it it is very personal to me but i hope it's personal to everyone um and whatever you know whatever level uh yeah, I think the one consolation that I bank on is that the, the elections of the last five, six years, almost every single election, special election, people are voting for what matters. And people have been voting, for the most part, for the right way. Hopefully that's going to happen again next year. But you just never know. You never know. I, I will say one thing. Like this morning, when they were talking about the vote for Santos, mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought that he wasn't going to be expelled. Mm -hmm. But, you know... Was he? Even the loud people? He was. He was. Expelled. He was. Oh, wow. We've been on yeah. the air all morning, so that's great. He's, he's, he's been expelled, and my my response to that is, let's let's see if we could get rid of Bob Menendez and Clarence Thomas. And Alex start, always has to start be bring, Start bringing back, uh, integrity back to government service. But look, here's even the loud people only get one vote, just like you. So even if they talk and talk and talk and talk, and it's all they talk about, and they have the Trump flag and the Trump shirt, and the Trump hats and all over their car, they have 38 member stickers. They still only get one vote. They they don't have a louder voice than you do. Yeah, I always say so, that election day is the one day of the year where the billionaire and the janitor have the exact same power. Yeah. And we should never and forget that. Because that's that. what democracy yeah. is. That's what democracy it is. is. And that's what we have to say. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's always a lot of Thank fun and you, always Andy. insightful to talk with you. Stay cool down there in Florida. And I look forward to our next chat. Yes. Thanks, Eddie. Take care.
This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week. Thank you.